This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. After five years in captivity in Beirut. Now, this is a slightly tricky event for me to do, and I'm never going to do it again, because you may also know that my dad was his boss. <laughs> and uh, and we've, never spoke, we've never spoken about this in public before, no. and we're not likely to. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But I'd just like to start by giving you a little, tiny little insight into the Church of England in the 1980s. This will take one minute about what it was like in the 1980s, because it may be, some of you are obviously far too young to remember uh, the Church of England in the 1980s, but it was, a very, it was quite a volatile time, politically and religiously. And uh, Terry joined uh, the staff at uh, Lambeth Palace in 1980, the same year that my father was uh, enthroned as Archbishop of Canterbury. And we kind of knew it was tense because in the year of that uh, enthronement, we had a bomb scare the night before. So we had armed police all around our house, um, which is pretty... You kind of arrive with armed police all around your house. And we knew that it was political. And then the 80s, the first few years of the 80s, involved the Falklands War, uh, Toxteth, Brixton riots, social unrest, the miners' strike, and the, uh, the church driven into quite an international situation. And what it needed was a secret weapon to deal with the international pressures of the job. And the secret weapon chosen was Terry. <laughs> now, to give you an idea about this secret weapon, um, I just want to tell you one small anecdote about Christmas Day. And it's Christmas Day uh, 1980. Five, four, 1984. And because we were posh, we had a butler. And the butler was known colloquially as Phantomsby because he could come into a room silently and leave silently. <laughs> and Terry was already... He'd already rescued hostages in Iran. And Phantomsby came into the room on Christmas Day in the luncheons and said... Um, and my mother said, what, what do you want? I mean, what do you want? And he said, Mr. Waite is on the telephone. And, uh, well, what does, he, what does he want? Well, he has, he has Colonel Gaddafi on the other line. <laughs> and my mother said, well, what does he want? He, uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Wade says he wants to wish you all a very happy Christmas. <laughs> and my mother said, but he's not even a Christian. <laughs> to which my father replied, maybe Terry's converted him. <clears throat> so... Just to give you an idea of, uh, this is the kind of world. And then, of course, Christmas uh, 1987, we came home from the Christmas service. Uh, we came home early because I had a seven-year-old daughter. And uh, there was, we came home early because she couldn't stand all the, you know, church and all that kind of stuff. And uh, waiting for us was Terry. And he was playing the piano, this kind of gentle giant. And he was incredibly kind to my seven-year-old daughter. Incredibly kind. He didn't have to be. He was incredibly kind. And then, of course, we never saw him for five years. And it was so shocking, uh, that loss, uh, and so delightful, that return. So this is a very emotional time for me, as well as for Terry. Sorry to take up your time, but I thought I'd set it up. Um, please welcome Terry Waite. So... Um, Terry, my first question is this. Uh, I'm a writer, and I get known as the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it quite annoys me a lot of the time. Uh, what's it like being the former hostage? Do you get annoyed by being defined by that? Because you are obviously more than a former hostage, but that's what people describe you as. Well, yeah, people do uh, 
constantly recognize me anywhere in the world, and I can't get away from that fact. <clears throat> I was walking across Trafalgar Square one day, and a small chap approached me, and he was a, obviously clearly a tourist, and by his accent he clearly came from the north of England. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Hey, lad, I know your face, but I just can't put a name to it. So I said, Ronnie Corbett. He said, aye, that's it. Now, <laughs> 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 we will get into serious matters, but I think you... you uh, that's serious. That that's is serious. That's very, very serious. But actually, you, came, you did come to Scotland once with my, with my father. I did. I did another occasion. You know, your father, father, first of all, I, I must pay a personal tribute to him. He was a great person, a great friend, very, very scholarly. I mean, he never wore his scholarship on his sleeve, uh, and he was very funny indeed, very humorous. I mean, when I came out of captivity, well, we did a couple of evenings together like this to raise money for charity. He was so witty. However, he and I were in Scotland, and we, we said uh, at the end of a very heavy day, he said, he said, let's go for a walk. And so he set off. He was wearing his purple stock, and I was just as I was. We were walking along, and a wee Scotsman approached us. We could tell no, he was Don't do the accent, Terry. Don't do don't, don't, <laughs> I will. Just I will. word of advice. Oh, yeah. Do not <laughs> imitate a Scottish accent in this room. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try. Oh. <laughs> He said, Mr. Whit. Is that right? Mr. Whit. He said, <laughs> a, a dinner, a dinner. Can you in Scotland? He said. I said, Can't have a wee dram and bring your friend along too. <laughs> <laughs> and your dad said, What's the point of being Archbishop of Canterbury? <laughs> I wonder how you, how you came to be Terry, in a, in a funny way, um, how you came to be the person you are. Because, I mean, obviously, you're not, you're not Ronnie Corbett. You're a, a large man. Do you think there's a pressure on you by being, I'm tall, and, you know, do you think there's a pressure on you to somehow be larger than life? I think uh, there is. I think one, one's always trying to do something. You know, you do very few things. Let me put it another way. I think when you are engaged, as I'm engaged, in philanthropic work, you're always doing something for yourself. Um, there's always something you're trying to prove. I suppose when I was young, uh, my father was a fairly strict disciplinarian. He was he a policeman. He was a policeman. He had a pretty unfortunate background because he was brought up during the years of the Depression when his father's business uh, went to the wall and he um, was treated pretty badly. He ran away from home. And I think that never, those difficulties never left him. And he put, I think he did unconsciously put a lot of pressure on his children to do better. I think it was unconscious. I don't think he intended that, but I think he had such a hard time himself. And so um, I suppose that was a factor that entered into it, that has given me always a, a care and an understanding and a desire to do something for those who are on the more margins of life, the underprivileged, the outcast, mm. those who find themselves in extreme difficulty. Mm. But I think in so doing that, I don't fool myself, because I don't say, you know, I'm totally full of altruistic motive. I recognize that in so doing, 
you know, one is doing something for oneself as well. Mm. You're very honest in the book uh, Taken on Trust, but, uh, and confidence is a, a very tricky issue because people who appear confident may not be. There may be a, a bundle of nerves underneath. But you do, can, where do you, but you appear, obviously, confident. You must be confident to go into a hostage situation in Beirut. So where does that confidence come from? I think um, what I've tried to do in all those situations, I mean, I have, as you know, negotiated with, uh, well, going back, way back into history, my first um, meeting was with General Amin. Yes. When my colleagues were thrown into jail and many were murdered. Later on with um, Revolutionary Guards, then with Gaddafi and with others. And one has to have a certain confidence, I suppose, but never total certainty. Mm. Where does it come from? I think it comes from my recognition that when I'm speaking to somebody such as Amin or Gaddafi or anybody else, they're a human being as much as I am. Mm. They have hopes, they have desires. They may have taken a very different pathway. They may have committed very brutal acts, terrible things. But I've always tried to relate to people as people and recognize that at, at root, at heart, we're all one human species and just not let any status or standing or position get in the way of that, mm. that communication. And one of, the, one of your, um, what in a ghastly, terrible modern parlance is your USP, was of course religion, that you were above, beyond uh, politics. You were not coming in a political capacity, you were not prepared to pay a ransom, something you're very clear about. Yep. Um, so how much did your religion, your religious belief, I mean I know that you, I, I think you learned, the, you knew the Book of Common Prayer on leaving school. Yeah, yeah. So, well, or by heart. How much did that how much does that part of your confidence and how much does that give you a kind of a, a special kind of passport into these political situations? Well, I was brought up uh, as a chorister and my father always said, if you start something, you, you, you go through it, you finish it. So I had to go to church Sunday by Sunday, whether I liked it or not. Many times I didn't like it, but I, I went. I, I went right through my young years, during which time, of course, the... The book, the book of Common Prayer um, came into my unconscious in a way that I unconsciously remembered it. And that was extremely useful in the days of captivity, when I was alone for four and a half years, in a dark room, chained to the wall, no books or papers, nothing, nothing at all. And I was determined then not to engage in extemporary prayer, because I felt if I did that, extemporary prayer being the prayer where you um, make your own words up and you ask God to that and the other, I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because that will just somehow lead me along the pathway of pleading for, oh, get me out of here. And I fell back then on the words of the Book of Common Prayer. For example, the colic, lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night. Now that prayer, that colic, has great meaning because when you're sitting in the dark, when you're afraid, as I was afraid at times because my life was on the line almost every day. Um, and also, more than that, one of the things you try to do in captivity, you see your body, your physical body, begin to deteriorate. 
Mm. I mean, my skin grew white because there was no natural light. And my beard grew long and white. And I remember thinking that I was getting old before my time. Mm. And there's nothing much I could do about my physical body. I could do simple exercises, but not much. But then I thought, how do I deal with this? Um, and is, as my body deteriorates, am I also going to deteriorate mentally? Am I going to fall apart? Because I'd read stories of people who'd been kept in solitary and had lost their mind completely. And I thought the only way to deal with that is to try and keep together inwardly um, and to somehow try and find inner harmony. And, you know, when you are introspective and five years alone or four and a half years alone, you can't help but be deeply introspective. You discover, of course, as everybody discovers, they're a complex mixture of light and dark. And somehow you're struggling within to harmonize. Mm. And one way in which that can take place is through language. Mm. Um, language of the prayer book, for instance, the prayer I just quoted uh, has meaning in content but it also has a harmony and a rhythm and the rhythm of poetry. And good language, like good music, has the capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. And um, that's where I valued the Book of Common Prayer. Today, I, I mean, I'm still an Anglican, of course. I always will be. But I'm also a member of the Society of Friends, the Quakers. Because during those years alone, um, I had to come to terms with silence because I had no one to speak. I didn't speak, have any conversation with anybody for over four years, you see. And so I had to come to terms with, with that. Um, one of the reasons, actually, I didn't have uh, much conversation with anybody because I would never let the guards off the hook. Yes. I would say to them, look, does it not say in the Quran you mustn't steal? They said, oh, no, oh, no, I mustn't steal. I said, how is it you steal me from my family? You steal my life. They said, well, go and ask the chief about that. So they <laughs> went away. A couple of weeks later, they came back. I said, what did the chief say? He said, the chief said, we mustn't talk with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Now, Terry, of course, the, the, story, uh, the story is almost Shakespearean, isn't it? Because this, there's this hero goes into a situation and is transformed by it. Did you ever, where, where was, I mean, I think there were possibly two moments where you felt, and you're very honest in Taken on Trust about the moment where you feel duped, you feel stupid, you're cross with yeah, yourself, yeah, you're yeah, angry with yourself. Yeah, yeah. When was the first moment, and what, can you just tell us what it was like when you first realised, oh my God? Well, I had been promised safe conduct to go and see uh, captives who were sick and who were, as I was told, one was about to die. And I said to the person who uh, told me that, he was the leader of one of the leaders of the gang, I said, he said to me, you can go and visit them. Because we, you've asked to see them in the past. I mean, I'm skipping over many, many visits. We haven't allowed it, but this time we will because of this situation, one is about to die. And I said, in response to that, if I come with you, you'll keep me. He said, no. And I went away, and I discussed this with various people. I got different advice. Some said, 
don't touch it with a barge pole, as you would expect. Others said, uh, well, yes, you'll probably be all right. And others said, yes, you've been given uh, safe conduct as a religious representative, which did matter a lot. The fact yeah. that I, your father was respected yeah. in, the, in those circles. Did he, by the way, I've never asked you this, did he, uh, how hard did he try to stop you? Oh, very, very hard. Um, he, and I, 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 I got to the point, I felt so strongly about it because, again, uh, it's a long story, and you, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain it in a few, few sentences, but I'd been duped, as a, um, or it had been alleged quite wrongly that I was conversant with what became known as the Iran-Contra deal, yes, that I were. was involved in arms dealing. And you... now I was not in any way involved in arms dealing, and it came out in the press that I was. And I said to your father, I said, look, if, 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 I, if we am accused of that, it's not only me, it's you, it's the whole church, and we've had nothing to do with it. And I said, I have to go back on the point of conscience to clear my name and to clear all our names and also for the hostages. And he said, oh, you can't do it. You, you, you're sure going to go into a terrible situation. And I'm afraid I did say, well, I'm sorry, but if you won't let me go, I shall have to resign and go back independently. Right. And at that point, he said rather reluctantly, but I have to say, if I'd have been in his position and you'd been on the staff, I would have said exactly the same as he said. Yes. I would. So I, I, I went back, and uh, um, that night, you, going back to your earlier question, um, I decided that, that I would go. I'd go back. And I went at night, and the leader of the gang came and what, what always happened was you got a quick check, body check and then taken down to a car I've been through this process many times you driven across town you get into another car in which there are armed guards front and back then driven to a secret location where you have a complete change of clothing uh, the body is examined to see if there's any locator device if you were wearing a locator device, you'd be shot on the spot. And then comes the hardest part, you wait. And the waiting is very difficult because you've no idea what's going to happen. The end of those about four or five days waiting with a change of clothes and with nothing of my own possessions, I was then taken at night into another car or van, driven across town. We went into a what I believe was a, an underground garage beneath a block of flats. And I looked out, they told me to look out, and beneath the blindfold, of course one was blindfolded all the time, beneath the blindfold I could see a trap door in the floor. They told me to jump down, pushed across the room and a door closed behind me, and I was in a tiled cell. And I knew the game was up then. And my first feelings, you asked me about that, my first feelings were one of anger. I was angry with myself, for taking such a risk, and I was angry with my captors for duping me in that way, which I half suspected they might do, but nevertheless I was angry. And you have to deal with anger in some ways, and I, many civilian prisoners, when they're first incarcerated, you know, refuse all food, because that's a way of saying, you may have imprisoned me, but you haven't captured me entirely. And I refused all food for a week, and at the end of the first week, they said, if you don't eat, 
when you make you eat. And by then, my anger had dissipated. And I think, again, another point on that, that anger is a normal human emotion. We all have it. And it can be used constructively and destructively. But um, if you allow it to fester, I think it's like a cancer that enters a soul. It does you more harm than those against whom it's held. Mm. And so at that point, my anger had gone. And when you're there, obviously, for four and a half years, the tendency is to go over and over events. And do you regret anything? For example, going in a helicopter with Oliver North or actually meeting Oliver North as the three or four times that you did? Yeah, I, I, yeah you, you look back of... and you say you could have done things differently. The difficulty is this, and I, it's, it's quite straightforward, but it's a very, very difficult problem for any humanitarian negotiator such as myself to resolve. If you are able, as I was able on many an occasion, to get in touch with the actual kidnappers themselves and talk face to face with them, because that was my strategy. Always meet them face to face. Very dangerous thing to do, but not impossible. I did it on several occasions. Meet with them, learn from their own lips why they are taking uh, hostages, and then try and unravel the problem. But when you do that, um, and if you are able to get to the source, um, every intelligence agency in the world that has an interest in that particular case will want to know you. And you're divided, because on the one hand, you want to support those who are seeking the release of innocent people. On the other hand, if you have any political savvy at all, you will know that governments often behave in duplicitous ways and get up to tricks and often play political games around hostage-taking. Mm. And you'll know that. So what do you do? And you try, and in my case, I cooperated to a point, many things I kept to myself. Mm. But then, you mentioned Oliver North, um, I was photographed in his presence. The assumption then was made that I was privy to arms dealing, which he mm. was engaged in, which was absolutely 500% against what I believed. Mm. But then that, that damn me. And that's what the kidnappers thought, you see. That yes. is why they took me and um, almost killed me. I mean, I you know, went through um, mock executions. Well, there were mock executions and they threw grenades. Of oh, all sorts of things, yeah. I dodged them. Terry, <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did you ever feel this is kind of, I brought this on myself? Oh, yes, of course I did. I brought it on myself. But then I believe this, you see. I believe your father did not make me do what I did. Hmm. He didn't. I mean, he was happy that we um, and that the, the church uh, could have done what it did for innocent people. Hmm. And so was I. But there was no compulsion. It was my decision. And I've always believed this. If you're going into a dangerous and difficult situation, and you know it's dangerous and difficult, you measure it. You say, there is a chance that I will be captured or killed. If you're not willing to face that, don't do it. Mm. If it happens, it's my responsibility. Mm. You know, I did it. Nobody else did it. I don't blame other people. Mm. You can say, blame the kidnappers, but that's another thing. Mm. My responsibility. And therefore, it was that attitude saying, OK, I got myself in this situation. I now bear it and try and live through it mm. and hopefully live successfully through it mm. which i'm just about managed <laughs> yeah well, it took a while yeah it took um, a while. but terry um so what, t tell us about 
What's going through your head when you are walking into a very difficult situation? Because, um, I mean, we all, get, we all get nervous about, you know, going for a job interview or being, you know, to, when you've done something wrong. But, I mean, you're going to very, very... How, how do you... How can we... How can, tell us how we can all channel our inner Terry uh, when we're faced with frightening or difficult situations. I... People have said to me, you know, that I trust others too much. And I think I've got a reasonable, reasonable, not, not faultless, but a reasonable assessment of human character. Um, but you can never be totally right. So I try to think when, for example, my first meeting with Gaddafi in Beirut, I thought, how do I approach that? Yeah. Um, and I took with me to meet with him a scholarly book of, um, which detailed the academic achievements of Islam in the 5th and 6th century. Because, as you know, mathematics, etc., 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 they were advanced. And I took with him a copy of that book and presented it to him, mm. first of all, as a sort of a, almost as a peace offering. He was, he was quite taken by that. Mm. He was very taken by that. And I suppose I went in, not full of confidence, but trying to find the human link between us. Mm. What is it? Where, is, where are the points of commonality here? Mm. Now, he was interested in that particular um, aspect of Islamic history. So was I. We could talk about that to begin with. Mm. Then we could build up and go on beyond that. Mm. So I don't know. I can't. I don't know if I can answer your question any more clearly than that. Really, just try to be oneself. Really, it's a clear answer. Um, and Terry, before we get on to your novel, I just want to ask: Why do you think you were released when you were released? Because there is a theory, as you know, that as soon as the blame for the Lockerbie bombing was moved mm. from. Um, from Beirut, from Lebanon to Libya, as soon as the Libyans were blamed, that gave Hezbollah and the uh, people an excuse to release you. Do you believe in that theory? Uh, there are a thousand and one theories. I, the, 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 the one that I think, for me, holds the most water is this. When I, first of all, went to see the captors of the Beirut hostages, and got my first meeting with them. Interestingly enough, just let me tell you how that first meeting came about. Um, how is it, how can you make contact with people who don't want to show their face? How do you do it? I mean, I sit in Lambeth Palace, and a family comes to me, and they say, can you help, because X has been captured. And you get to the, you phone the Foreign Office, and you go and see the Foreign Office, and they had no idea as to where or well, they know the, the, the general location, but not the precise location. They have no idea why or who it is that's holding him. You go across to America and meet with the authorities there. They can't give you any information. What do you do? Well, in this case in Beirut, what I did, I took a, a high public profile, went to the media for whom I'm indebted, to whom I'm indebted, and made it clear that I was willing to go out to Beirut to make, meet face-to-face with the hostage takers. And it did get a response, strangely enough. One day, 
I don't know if you know this story. Someone came into Lambeth Palace. His name was Myron Belkind. He was the AP bureau chief. Mm. And he came in with a scrap of paper and he handed it to me. And on it, on the scrap of paper, it said, where's the effect? We're the people you want to see. Come and see us. But the important point was it was signed by four hostages whom we believed to be in captivity. We checked the signatures. They were authentic signatures. And that gave me the lead-in to, to go actually and go out there and see them. You know, having been accused of grandstanding by going to the press all the time. And sometimes in these situations, you know, you, you need a bit of good fortune, but you also need a bit of to take a few risks and to take a, try a few different channels mm. and be subject at the same time to misunderstanding. One of the most difficult things for me, actually, um, oh, well, the theory, I'll answer your question, come back to that. When I met with the captors, their demands were for the release of their blood relatives who were being held on a variety of terrorist charges in Kuwait. And I said, I can't intervene in due process of law, but what I can do is try and see that those men are treated in a humane way as a humanitarian. I couldn't get near them, and I couldn't understand why not. I could get no help politically from the British government or from the American government. I even went to the White House. I met with um, George Bush, uh, senior, in the White House. I got no political help to get near Kuwait. Then, later on, of course, I realized why not, because in the background, Iran-Contra was running, unknown mm. to me. Mm. But having said that, the demands of the hostages, hostage-takers to me were for the release of those men, mm. or for better conditions. Mm. Now, if I could have got near them, I would have been able at least to take a few steps forward in the process mm. um, and, and get a little nearer and probably save some suffering and some conflict. When we were released, we were released almost at exactly the same time as those men were released from prison mm. um, as a result of warfare. So you think it's connected? Well. That's one theory. It could be. Now, Terry, I want, to just, I want to talk about your release and life afterwards, but I've forgotten to ask a, a really crucial question, because it's all, all very well about, and this is a massively personal question, but I want to ask it. Um, and this is about your wife, Frances. Um, surely she told you not to go? Never. Never? Never. Never. Frances always said, you must do what you believe you have to do. Never, ever did she say, don't go. Do you feel guilty that... Do you feel... I mean, do you feel most guilt, more guilty about her than anybody else? I just wonder. I don't know if I feel guilty, because I think when we married, she knew that I was an independent mind. So she knew that. I mean, I feel... I feel... Rather than guilt, I would feel sorrow. Yeah. Not just for... Uh, Francis and, and others. I underestimated the resilience of children. Yes. For example, I used to worry more than ever about children because my children were going through, uh, got, about to go into university. I mean, eventually all four got their degree. But uh, I underestimated their resilience. But I, I felt sorrow for the family. I felt sorrow for your father. Yes. I really did because I think your father got very unfairly pilloried. And, and, and yes, attacked by the press, not just for this, but for many things. Yes. And he was, in fact, as is now being said, 
and there'd be recognised a very great Archbishop. Well, that's very kind of you, but I think, I think we, were, we were, to be honest with you, we were cross with you, because, yeah, because not only because you disobeyed him, but also, we, 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 uh, no, I mean, yeah, we were, we were cross, but you can't have it both ways. You can't be prou really proud of somebody and say, you know, we know Terry and he's marvellous and he's this international. It's a classic Shakespearean narrative, as I, as I mentioned. And then we were, we were cross with you because we were cross with, 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 with what Francis had to go through, really, yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah but, but you see... The reputation of the church was at stake. The reputation, my personal reputation was at stake. And I had to say, look, I'm going back to see those fellows because I've had absolutely nothing to do with arms dealing and would not. And I, I almost guarantee that if I hadn't done that, forever it would have been said, uh -huh, yes, you know, yes. church playing two games here, saying we condemn arms on the one hand and dealing beneath the surface on the other. And that would be wrong. Mm. That would have been wrong for your father. Yes. So, by a gum, I think I'd have been cropped in this position <laughs> too, know. you know. But, um, <laughs> and then coming out, of course, um, how do you think this captivity changed you? Well, it changed me in, in a number of ways. First of all, it gave me a, a deeper appreciation of, of silence, because I didn't speak to anybody for years. Much too, uh, I suppose many people were grateful for that, but I kept quiet. Um, but uh, I think also this, when I came back, I mean, my job had been held open and your father had then retired. And, um, and there was a new archbishop. But I didn't want to go back into a salaried job. And I said, what I'm going to do now is spend the rest of my life, such as it is, whatever it will be, in giving my time to the disadvantaged through Emmaus for the Homeless, which is an organization that enables homeless people get back into life, YCARE, which is an organization for young people, enabling young people around the world to develop their skills and get employment, uh, Hostage UK, which gives support to hostage families, and prisoners. And I'm not going to take any any salary for many of these organizations. I'm going to earn my own living by writing and lecturing. Mm. And now I would not have had the courage to do that had I not been through this period of being totally isolated. And somehow I got the courage to say, okay, leave behind regular salary, just get on with it and do it. And somehow, you know, it's 20 odd years now, mm. somehow that's worked. I'm still here. Yes, and, you, and you've written this, this book, which, um, uh, we're going to come to questions very, very shortly. Um, when I first got sent this book, uh, and I was asked for a quote on this book, uh, I thought, there are enough writers in the world without him bloody adding to it. I mean, what, what's, he, what's he doing? It's a bit blood, I thought it was a bit bloody cheeky of you, to be honest. Um, and uh, this is a kind of rompy, rompy book. Um, uh, but there's an extraordinary, there are two extraordinary characters. It's, this is about a cruise, uh, sort of uh, 20, set in 2013. It's a, it's a very, very funny uh, book in which a character, there's a character called Toby Troy, who has won the British Empire Medal, who, when he was in foreign places attempting to sell Bibles to Hezbollah, has been captured and spent many years in solitary <laughs> confinement. So, this is basically history repeated as farce. <laughs> so, Terry, what are you doing? What on earth are you doing writing this book? Well, I mean, today... Apart from entertainment, obviously. obviously <laughs> yeah. entertainment, pleasure, fun, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am constantly dealing with um, very, very tough situations. I mean, recently, for many years now, but recently the pace has hotted up 
because we've been working with the families of those who've been taken hostage and in some cases beheaded, murdered, and working constantly with those depressing situations. And you can't open a newspaper these days or listen to the news without getting some news that's fairly depressing. And I think, uh, James, it's very important that despite all the troubles that there are in the world, and there are plenty, that we should not be robbed of our humour. Mm. We should still be able to laugh. And um, laugh, laughter is good for us. Mm. And I thought, well, more than anything else, I'm going to write this book um, to make myself laugh. Yes. And I, I did. I wrote it for myself. And it was a surprisingly good fun to, to write. And I've often found myself laughing at it myself. But I had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I had no so, idea where it was going, you see. Yes, I mean, no, I, it's clear. I, I, Several I, times you don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, no. But, uh, Terry, Albert, Albert and Alice Hardcastle, your characters, they go on a cruise, yeah. and they go to Tripoli, and they're imprisoned. They're yeah. mysteriously imprisoned. <laughs> they're sort of kidnapped, yeah. and they're imprisoned. Every so often, a dirtied, beard, dirty, bearded fellow, what seemed to Albert, wearing what seemed to Albert like a long nightshirt, came and peered at them through the bars. So, you know, uh, this is this mad beardy bloke. That's you, isn't it? Well, it could be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question before the audience. If you, were, if you were 35, Terry, now, today, no. would you do the same job? Would you be trying to deal with things like ISIS? Oh, I like to think I would. I really like to think I would. Um, and I think, you see, talking about ISIS, I mean, at the moment, it's a, it's a terrible problem. Um, I just, just let me tell you a quick yeah. story, really. Um, when John McCarthy, who actually occupied this stage a couple of years ago, John and Brian Keenan were kept together as hostages, the food became very bad. They complained and complained and complained. And eventually, the head man came to see them. He said, well, what is it you're getting? And they told him. And he said, that's wrong, that's wrong. He looked into it, and he discovered the old story that the guard had been given money to buy food. He pocketed half and spent the other half on food. So they took the guard outside, and they shot him. Because oh. they said, if you'll betray us in small matters like that, big, some, one comes along with a big bribe, you give the whole group away. Now, that story is, is actually very interesting, because... There are many young people who are, and young Islamic people, who do not like what is they see taking place in, a, in contemporary society. And some of their criticisms are valid. Um, they're persuaded by a charismatic leader that the way to deal with things is to seek for an Islamic state, is to get everybody under the same umbrella, the same rule, and join the organization and fight for their rights, and fight for what they believe. They're persuaded. They join the organization. Once they're in, there's no way out. They've had it. They're trapped. Now, somehow, uh, there were a couple of ways of dealing with this. I got back the night before. I went to South Africa on Sunday. I came back Wednesday night. We're setting up some projects out there through YCARE to enable young people to have an opportunity uh, to create their own businesses. And we're doing this all over the world. I was in Togo the other, the other month over there. We've got to have a real uh, move towards young people and to help them. 
One of the next big problems that's going to face us in the world is the mass migration of people. We're seeing it already in, in Calais and some of these terrible stories. Why are they leaving? Because situation at home is intolerable. And in part, I have to say it, we in the West have a certain responsibility, not a total responsibility, but a certain responsibility. Remove a dictator by force, I said, when we went into Iraq, and you release forces that you're not able to control. They went in regardless, Iraq, a total mess. Libya, no time for some of the actions of Gaddafi. But now, impossible, you have ISIS on the banks of the Mediterranean. Um, so we have, a, in part, a responsibility here for the disturbance, not only that, not, not just our, our role, I mean, the economic differences, religious differences, and so on. Eventually, eventually, we will have to talk. When we see these youngsters on camera uh, beheading people, I mean, I've had to watch those videos professionally, terrible videos, but those are the psychopaths. Not every young man is a psychopath. Not everybody who joins that organization is a psychopath. And eventually we'll have to get to some of the root causes and not just deal with symptoms. It's too often in our foreign policy we're giving knee-jerk reactions and dealing with, with symptoms rather than dealing with root issues. And the reason, one of the reasons, in my view, that we do that is because the root issues, to deal with them, takes time and most politicians think in five years, election, and uh, say, let's do something quickly. Let's be seen to be doing something. And then it gets too much, and we're in a hopeless mess as we're in now with, with people trying to flood into the country and with these terrible, terrible situations in the Middle East. Mm. Anyway. Right. Well, that's uh, a very massive subject. Um, some <laughs> questions. So if you, I could ask your questions to be really sharpish, because we've got 10 minutes of questions, and then Victoria. Hello, Victoria. You're going to come up and do something, and then I'm going to round it up. So any questions for Terry? Don't, yes, uh, yes, gentleman here. Um, if we could go up there, that would be great. No, the wrong Arnold, done. You're going? Oh, it's going along that way. I know. Anybody over here while we're waiting? Anybody over here? Yeah, no? Yeah. Okay. Gentleman here in the, in the suit. In the suit. Well, completely fascinating. I mean, I met Terry Waite initially in the Foreign Office, and in fact, you won't remember me. I remember you very well um, <laughs> before you went to Beirut. And in fact, I always uh, regard you as my friend Terry for some extraordinary reason, you, you charismatic uh, result. But uh, my question is really concerning ISIS in particular and your relationship with your captors and what you think of those captors. Um, what actually happened? Did you find out what happened to them later? Did they survive? Are they still around? And how would you confront um, ISIS? Well, I, t two things there. Um, first of all, um, a number of those young lads who, with whom I had association years ago are dead. They died in carbon. I know. For instance, a couple of guys in, in explosions, car bomb explosions, and other, other ways. Some are still alive. Uh, not too long ago, I went back to meet with some of the leaders of the group. Um, 25 years earlier, I'd gone at night to meet with that promise I told you about, and was thwarted. And I've often thought, what on earth can ordinary people such as myself and others do to 
bring about some basis for a peace settlement. And I came up with a very, very simplistic answer. And the simplistic answer is, if only somebody from, let us say, Israel and someone from the occupied territory were able to get together and say, we put the past in the past and try and build a new future together. If a lot of people did that, we begin to have the basis for a political settlement. Because you can't have a political settlement unless you have trust between people. And I thought it's useless me saying this on a platform and not doing something about it. So I went back, I went back into Beirut and I went to, at night again, to the headquarters to see the leaders of that group. <laughs> they were surprised to see me. Um, <laughs> you want more? <laughs> oh, Mr. Wade, you stay no. longer this time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I said what I said. And he, he, he was complimentary, what he said. But then he treated me for the first time as a human being. And then I said, I'd been previously up to the Syrian border to look at the plight of the refugees and dreadful. And I said, look, those people on the border there, they're cold, they've left, they've nothing. Can you at least give me heating oil for them? And he said, yes, we'll do it. And he did it. Now, it's a very, I'm not naive enough or daft enough to think that my one gesture is going to bring about great change. But I, as I said a moment or two ago, if 10,000 in Israel and 10,000 in the occupied territories were to do it, we begin to have the basis of a settlement. And when people say there is nothing that ordinary people can't do, I don't believe it. There are things that can be done. And often we're bamboozled into thinking it's only politicians or people in high rank and high office who can do it. Mm. There are things that can be done. They're risky, they're difficult, and sometimes they present us with very big challenges. Going back to your question about ISIS, um, I know at the moment there are behind the scenes some, some endeavours made to talk with people behind the scenes and that eventually talking will have to take place as you will know certainly from your own experience with all the uh, terrorist organisations that have been going back to Mau Mau and so on eventually the situation has had to be resolved through talking uh, and this will happen in this case and let's hope in the meantime there's not going to be even more bloodshed and I'm afraid there will be a lot at the moment, a lot more. Mm. Uh, gentleman here, could you get the mic to Victoria just uh, for afterwards? But this gentleman here, question. Yeah. Well, thank you, Terry. It's spellbinding. It? Where are you? There, yes. there. Oh, you're there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, spellbinding. Uh, four and a half years is long enough to experience, I think, a, a broad spectrum of feelings. Did you ever experience a Stockholm Syndrome? Did I ever? The yeah. Stockholm syndrome is um, a syndrome whereby you uh, take on the virtually take on the cause of those who've captured you and become oversympathetic towards them. The answer is no, I didn't. I could understand, and this is a big difference. I could understand why they did what they did, because they'd suffered themselves years of deprivation. They'd been put to the bottom of the pile politically, economically, and in many other ways, and they were fighting to establish themselves for a different position in society. So I can understand that without in any way 
condoning or agreeing with the methods they chose to achieve their aims for a better life for themselves and their people. So the answer is no, I didn't experience Stockholm Syndrome. As I said earlier, I would never let them off the hook. Um, and that's the reason they wouldn't talk to me after a while. But uh, no, I didn't, no. Okay, we're, we're sorry, Victoria. Um, I'm just inviting Victoria onto the stage because Victoria is Fred Hood's brother. Uh, this is the fourth... Uh, sister. sister. She's a woman. She's a woman. I was near the end. I was getting relaxed. I was getting relaxed. I, was, I knew I'd make some kind of mistake. Victoria. Welcome, everyone, and thank you, James, for the introduction. Um, I'm Frederick's little sister and the only sister of four older brothers. My brother, Frederick, um, was killed by an avalanche on Christmas 2008, skiing in Austria. Sorry. He was working here in Edinburgh at Walter Scott and Partners. We had been for just 18 months at the time of his death that after only 18 months association, the Walter Scott firm wanted to establish the Frederick Hood Memorial Lecture Fund linked to the Edinburgh Book Fair still amazes me and my family and speaks volumes about what an extraordinary person was my much loved brother Fred. As well as being an inspiration to everyone who met him, Frederick knew much of the world, partly as a result of my father's career but he had a natural curiosity and had friends from all over the world, from his student days at Eton, Harvard, and John Hopkins University, from where he had a master's degree in international relations. Two cities were especially dear to Frederick, Edinburgh, where from his Eton and Harvard days, acting and directing, he spent several years participating in the Fringe and indeed was one of the co-founders of the Underbelly when he was 22 years old. The other city was Bologna because of the branch John Hopkins University has there. It was at Bologna branch that Fred did his masters. He topped the class and won a scholarship to pursue a PhD during which time turned some extra euros, he also taught English history at Bologna University. When he first went to Bologna, Fred bought himself a classic fedora hat, and he wore it everywhere, even to work at Walter Scott several years later. Only my brother Fred, at his young age, could have gotten away with this. It was, it was Walter Scott's idea that each year the Frederick Hood Memorial Lecture giver should receive an identical fedora. This year, it gives me great pleasure on behalf of the Hood family to present this fedora hat, also purchased from the same small hat shop behind the Duomo in Bologna, to you, sir, Terry Waite. And thank you for such an extraordinary lecture in memory of my brother. It was indeed very inspiring. Thank you. You'd have to put it on, Terry. Don't go, don't go, don't go. I just want to say what a privilege it is 
for me to be able to be here on stage with both James and Victoria. Tonight, uh, this evening, before coming here, I had a meal with Victoria and her mother. And uh, I said then, what a wonderful thing you've done to keep the memory of your brother alive in such a way that something good and positive comes from what is a most tragic and terrible experience and something you will live with you for the rest of your life. But you've taken it in such a way, your whole family, that something good and positive is coming from it. And it will do for many people here tonight who will remember Fred, remember your speech, and say, well, you know, we've benefited from that event. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much. I just have to say one thing. Um, Terry will be signing copies of uh, this um, extraordinary tome, uh, as well as uh, Taken on Trust. Um, I just want to say thank you particularly to Victoria. Well done. It's jolly, jolly hard to do that kind of thing. And so very well done, um, especially for a bloke. Um, and, uh, Anyway, the other thing is, um, I just want to say that uh, if Chaucer was writing the Canterbury Tales today, I'm sure one of his pilgrims, because I think what, Terry's life is a kind of pilgrimage, he's travelled the world, and I think Chaucer, one of Chaucer's first pilgrims, uh, would be Terry. Uh, we're going to go next door now to get in the queue, this queue for the signing and everything. Well, and we're not going to get in the queue, he's going to be at the head of it, he's going to be signing the books. <laughs> Um, but uh, Terry's going to be signing next door. Do ask him questions, but please thank the modern pilgrim that is Terry Waite. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.